When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This show contains strong language. Listener discretion is advised. This may uh, seem far-fetched, and as uh, the story of my life unfolds, it's even going to get crazier. But I want the listener to know right here and now that I ain't full of shit, and I'll bet you $10,000 to your dollar, and you'll lose a dollar every time. If you hang around certain Miami bars, you might hear about a guy named Steve Coe. A legend, really. He was a daredevil. Always the life of the party. The kind of guy that had a story for everything. He was a college football star. He even made it to the NFL. Steve flies down the field all alone, catches a pass, runs it in. It's like a 70-yard touchdown. He was a model on the showroom floor at Saks Fifth Avenue. He was gorgeous. My sister asked me, oh, is there another one of him someplace? <laughs> He'd free dive for Spiny Lobster in the Florida Keys. He owned a limo that he drove himself down to the bars and strip clubs on the South Dixie Highway. And it seemed like he had some truly ridiculous run-ins with the rich and famous. He said something like, all right, barkeep, why don't you go get us another round? And they were like, this is Leo DiCaprio. And he's like, looks like a cocktail waiter to me. But there was one thing that really established him as a fixture in 1980s Miami. South Florida has the dubious honor of being the cocaine and marijuana capital of the United States. He became a drug smuggler, and he was in the best city to do it. Smuggling along the secret bayous and mangrove islands has been a craft handed down from generation to generation. He'd skip through the Miami waters on a speedboat to Jamaica, the Bahamas, even Cuba, transporting marijuana and cocaine for cash. But none of this tops his most outrageous story. On every drug run Steve went on, he collected a souvenir. Sculptures, paintings, trinkets, anything to bring a little piece of his adventures home. One of his treasures was this ceramic. Four colorful tiles that fit together like puzzle pieces. They're of a man and a woman. And this ceramic has a story with some pretty major name drops. The tiles had once belonged to Ernest Hemingway, a man who changed American literature. They were a gift made by his friend Pablo Picasso. You know, one of the most influential artists of the 20th century. And it gets even crazier. These tiles were quite possibly meant for the Colombian drug lord Pablo Escobar, the king of cocaine himself. It's this trinity of 20th century machismo, all in this one piece of art. So how did Steve Coe get his hands on this priceless work of art? And is it even real? I don't think that your story is real. Forget about it. 
And when I saw it, then it's like, this is a real Picasso. It doesn't look like anything that I have seen at the Picasso museums. And if it isn't? This motherfucker better be real, because if it's not, then I'm going to go kick Steve Sr.'s ass. I'm Leah Carroll, and from something else, this is Hemingway's Picasso. Chapter One, Into the Mine. I'm not the first journalist to try and tackle the legend of Steve Coe. In fact, a lot of people have tried to tell Steve's story. In book form, movie form, you name it. The person who got the furthest was a guy named Joe Flood. I'd written this book a few years earlier. I'd been doing some freelance journalism, you know, some financial reporting and a bunch of different things to sort of make ends meet, but wasn't really making ends meet very well. Joe had honestly been struggling to get published. He just needed his big break. So in 2014, when an editor friend told him about this guy he thought might have the makings of a great feature article, Joe was in. He got on the phone with Steve, and Joe was met with this voice. But it's just like such a you know, gruff voice, tough guy. Um, it would even be sort of intimidating. And then suddenly be very vulnerable. It showed these sort of like, you know, hidden emotions. That dynamic, I think, in a character is really fascinating. Steve told Joe about this ceramic that landed in his lap from Hemingway's home in Cuba, the Finca Vajilla. He didn't say if it had a real name, but he called it Fred and Betty. Strangely enough, Joe felt like he'd heard about this piece before. I'd actually been to Cuba, and I'd sort of heard these bits about how there was like this allegedly lost Picasso that belonged to Hemingway floating around. It was a dreamy prospect, a lost treasure that had passed through the hands of two masters, one of art, the other of literature. Almost too good of a story to be true. Joe couldn't believe that that Picasso wound up in Steve Coe's hands. I thought this was all fake. I really thought of this as, and had sort of framed it to an editor and pitched it as a charismatic con man story. Joe pitched a profile of Steve to an up-and-coming magazine about art and architecture, and they were into it. With the magazine I was talking to at the time, they were talking about doing like a special Art Basel issue about Steve and the piece. Art Basel is one of the biggest art fairs in the world. It's hosted annually in Basel, Switzerland, Hong Kong, and... Miami Beach, Florida. It was a cool angle. Talk to Steve around when Art Basel is happening in Miami and see if he can sell the piece there. But Joe wouldn't be meeting Steve in Miami. In 2014, at least, Steve was crashing with a friend in Iowa. And so I can't remember how much of it was like Steve's idea or like an editor's idea or what it was, but it was like, what if you drove with him from Iowa to Miami? It becomes a central narrative, right? Steve is down to do this story. He wants to sell that alleged Picasso for the right price. And he's going to take Joe along for the ride. It's a cold, damp October day. Joe's waiting outside the Seoul Terminal at the Eastern Iowa Airport. 
He's in Cedar Rapids, about to be picked up by an ex-drug smuggler who allegedly owns a priceless piece of art. Steve pulled up in a black car and got out. He's wearing these jeans, a denim shirt, and a jean jacket, a full Canadian tux. And he had this long salt and pepper hair slicked back in a ponytail. He looks so 80s. He's got the phenomenal Tom Selleck mustache. You know, he's, he's South Beach tan. And, you know, a professional athlete, you know, with, the, with the, deep, the deep V-neck shirts and all that sort of stuff. He looked like an aging movie star, ready to make his big comeback. Joe hopped into Steve's car. Steve picks me up in the, in the Hotel Abraham. The Hotel Abraham, it turned out, wasn't a hotel at all. It was his car. His old Lincoln Continental that he had allegedly been gifted by the Gambino crime family, John Gotti's crime family. Steve had been living in the Hotel Abraham off and on again for the past few years. Joe got a look at the back seat of the car. There were some suits straight from the 80s, advertisements from Steve's modeling days, his whole life, basically. Steve told him they had to stay in Iowa that night before they hit the road. Joe brought a voice recorder along for the journey. You're staying there, okay? Okay. You understand what I'm saying? This way, I got all my shit, I'm packing, I'm packing, I'm not leaving a fucking thing here. And uh, you can rough it for one night. Yeah, I'll be fine. Okay. In the meantime, we're going right to the bar. He was, at the time, uh, very vocal about being stuck in Iowa. I'm used to being on Miami Beach, motherfucker. You understand? Click, clacking it up, backing it up. All right? You lose everything, you wind up in bumfuck Iowa with a car that's shaking all over the fucking road with a Harvard fucking journalist. <laughs> all Steve wants is to be back in Miami. The setting of all his most wonderful stories. Miami the Beautiful eternally whispers of dreams fulfilled. It's steamy, buzzing. There's a pulse to this city. But underneath the glamour, there's something gritty. Miami's a fucking sunny place with a lot of shady people. Drug smugglers, especially those carrying cocaine, breeze by undercover agents. This city was quite literally built with cocaine money. Perhaps billions of dollars are made in South Florida drug deals every year. Miami was fast, luxurious, with its rustling palm trees, white sand beaches, skyscrapers reflected blue from the ocean and skies, and the promise that drug money could set a man up for life. But Steve wasn't in Miami. He was in Iowa living in the Hotel Abraham with all his possessions. Last five years have been a real down, down for me. Stephen's definitely trying to sort of recapture some glory years here. He talked pretty regularly about, you know, going on one last run. In the old days, Steve would have organized a crew and sailed to Jamaica, smuggled some drugs into Miami in exchange for a nice paycheck. But he can't do that now. First of all, all my friends, my real good buddies are in jail or they're dead. Let's put it this way. If I had the money, I could put a boat together and do, go back to doing what I do, you know, but, you know, 65. (laughs) 
This road trip with Joe to sell Fred and Betty felt like his last chance for something exciting. I'm a warrior, but I'm fading. This could be my last hurrah. I know that. I know this could be my last hurrah. That night, on the brink of their trip, it was clear to Joe that Steve had a much larger plan in mind. Sell Fred and Betty, get some attention from Joe's story, and turn that attention into a Hollywood production deal. A blockbuster action flick. Rambo meets Scarface. The Steve Coe story. Talking to a reporter, he's putting those stories into the world. He's giving up some element of control over them. And the whole idea with the piece was that this was supposed to, you know, drum up interest in it so that he could sell it and and make money. And so I think he was really scared of giving these things up. You know, who was he then? Steve had two incredibly valuable possessions left. The piece and his story. You ask me to trust you, I trust you, okay? And on top of that, I'm offering you, me, okay, to do this whole fucking thing. Steve believed that he really had a Picasso once owned by Hemingway. He believed it was worth millions, maybe even tens of millions. And it was pretty clear to Joe that Steve felt his story was worth just as much. In Iowa, Steve told Joe that he'd been recording himself on cassette tapes, his whole life story from top to bottom. Steve wanted his life to be a movie so badly. He had no doubt that a movie producer would snap up the chance to tell his story. And Steve was gonna be ready for that day. It didn't matter how many cassettes he burned through. And that's what I have now, Steve's manuscript tapes. There are about 25 of them, about 30 hours long. Steve starts from the beginning, decades before Fred and Betty come into play. Before he became Mr. Miami, Steve Coe was just a kid in Dearborn, Michigan, a city 20 minutes outside of Detroit. It's where Henry Ford was born, and it became a major hub for the auto industry. But Steve wasn't destined for the assembly line. He had one passion, football, and he was good. Yeah, the best of my recollection is 1962. Playing for the West Dearborn Lions. Steve was a high school football star, scoring touchdown after touchdown every game. That spread to my family now, too, in Pennsylvania. Steve spent most of his year in Michigan, but during summers and holidays, he'd visit his father's side of the family in Altoona, Pennsylvania. It's an old railroad town, nestled in the Appalachian Mountains. I go back uh, Thanksgiving 1962. It was exceptionally cold. And uh, my dad said, your uh, grandfather wants to meet you. My grandfather on my dad's side was uh, was a no-good-for-nothing bootlegger. Used to uh, smuggle uh, whiskey from Canada off of Lake Erie when it froze up. And my dad recalls the only recollection he had of him was taking beatings and 
this is a character I'm going to meet at 12 years old. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, uh, what the hell am I going to see this guy for? Steve's dad had tried to get away from that life. He fought in World War II, and he became a football coach. And I guess he was worried his son was going the other way, which is why he let the following events happen. So we get to the top of Galitzin Mountain uh, outside of Altoona, Pennsylvania. It's uh, snow, snow flurries, windy, about 20 degrees, ice cold. My dad lets me out of the car and says, uh, just go up to that guy right there and tell him you're Steve Coe. There's this grizzled old coal miner. He pulls out a pint of some type of booze, slams it down and said, let's go, boy. We proceed down into this uh, abandoned coal mine. He's got that one of him old coal mining lamps. Couldn't hardly see anything, so he gave me a a pick and told me to start picking this uh, number nine coal. It was hot as hell down there. This guy didn't say a word to me, and he reeked of booze. And he come up out of the coal mine, and uh, my dad was still there just waiting. This is what my grandfather, Dan Cole, said to me. This is the only time he talked to me, basically. What color is this horse? And I said, it's black. And he hit, uh, he hit the horse on, on the neck, and the horse was white. He says, uh, you got two options, the coal mine or play football. I mean, he can tell a story. Joe Flood told me that when he went into the bars with Steve, people would crowd him, repeating his stories back to him. It's like what he said was gospel. I have a history with bullshitters. I've researched them. I've written about them. I grew up with them. My mother was murdered when I was four. And when I was 35, I wrote a book about it, about the whole shady world that covered up her death. I spent 10 years talking to a lot of people for my book. Mobsters, cops, city hall bureaucrats, you name it. A lot of them were like Steve. They'd wax poetic about all the scary, impressive things they did. When I pushed for more, sitting across from them in a dark bar or inside a prison visiting room, they'd tell me I wouldn't understand. And like, I definitely understood. But my facts got in the way of their good story. So I was kind of dismissive of Steve at the start. But listening to these tapes, I began to know a man who could be brash, cruel, funny, and heartbreakingly vulnerable. And I became obsessed with figuring out whether or not he was telling the truth or if he was just another myth maker. In my family, uh, we have what is called Dutch uncles. And I was uh, closer to my Dutch uncles than I was to my real uncles. Most of the Dutch uncles I had were backdoor dealing alcohol, gangster types. 
they might have legitimate jobs, but they were basically all hustlers. And this comes from my uncle Ab. 285 pounds. Big, jovial man. And he looks down at me, takes a drag off his cigar. Said, this is your first lesson, son. Don't ever lie, but learn how to twist the truth. So how much of Steve's story, the football, the drug smuggling, the Picasso, how much of that had been twisted? Honestly, at this point, I'm not sure I even believe the first extraordinary thing I learned about him, that he played in the NFL. And it turns out I had a right to be skeptical. I I was never able to find formal documents about Steve being on the practice squad. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Before I can untangle Steve's stories, I have to hear the stories themselves. More on that after the break. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, And this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios. Wherever you get your podcasts. Steve's son, Stephen Coe Jr., goes by Stevie. He seemed different from his dad, the gangster I'd been hearing on all these tapes. He's an avid skateboarder. He harvests weed on farms in Humboldt County, California. He's kind of a hippie. My producer, Pallavi, called Stevie. We wanted to get to know him and see if we could visit him in California. Hello? Hey, how's it going? It's going well. Am I speaking to Stevie? Yes, you are. Is this uh, Pallavi? Pallavi. It actually rhymes with your name. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, how's it going, sweetie pie? How's your day? Pallavi and I instantly like Stevie. I think most people do. He's the kind of guy who'll always offer you a beer, a hug, or a weed gummy. And he really believes in Fred and Betty 100%. He believes maybe too much. I know where it comes from. I know what the hell happened, and I know for a damn fact that things are real. Part of me wondered if Stevie would have the same kind of questions about his dad that I had. Could his stories even be real? But when we first started talking, it didn't seem like Stevie had any doubts. He's definitely a a unique character. He's a magic man, for sure. Magical. Mystical. My dad remembered everything. He trained his mind to be super big on detail. If he walks from the parking lot into the store, into the diner, he already knows every single fucking license plate in the lot. He was like an owl, very wise. Even though 
Even though Stevie now lives in California, his home is Miami. I love the water. I've always been around it. Steve's work revolved around the water. He would read tide charts and figure out his roots. He'd teach Stevie how to read them, too, when Stevie was still in middle school. From the beginning, Stevie was Steve's right hand. I was really the only person he trusted. Mm. So I had a lot of responsibility at a very young age. I have to know, like, Wynwood Pass from Yucatan Pass from Panama to Jamaica, from Jamaica to the Bahamas, from the Bahamas to Florida. It's just a, a long laundry list of inventory of things, and it never really ended. I don't know. I woke up one day, like few years ago and just kind of just like reminiscing on things and I was just like what the fuck was that like what the fuck was all that like, mm. what the hell dude had to grow up pretty fast Steve seemed to be preparing Stevie to take over for him one day he seemed to know that he'd eventually have to lean on his son dad told me one day son I will be your baby boy and I never understood what that meant. Steve Coe rarely went to the doctor. In fact, he hadn't gone to a regular physical for years until he qualified for Medicaid when he turned 65. It was during that visit that the doctor found something. Prostate cancer usually grows slowly. And if you catch it in its early stages, you have a fighting chance of beating it. But by the time Steve was diagnosed, it was pretty far gone. Stevie flew his dad out to California, where he thought the Medicaid laws might be easier to navigate. Plus, he only trusted himself to take care of his dad. Until I wiped my dad's ass for the first time when he couldn't wipe his ass. When I showered him, bathed him, he became my baby boy. You have to understand, he couldn't walk. He couldn't talk. But Steve did manage to say a few last words to Stevie. Before he died, he said, get it done. Get it done. Get it done. Sal, Fred, and Betty. Stevie understood that this was his dad's final mission. And now it was his. I laid my dad to rest and I went to work. And I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to, like, sleep or fucking do anything until, like, I sell this piece to fucking accomplish the words of a dying man's last wish. More after the break. So Steve and Joe were about to head out from Cedar Rapids to sell this alleged masterpiece. But before Joe was going to get in the Hotel Abraham with this possible con man and drive across the country... He was going to need two things as collateral. He needed the story of how Steve got the piece, and he needed to see the piece himself. And even though every barfly in North Miami seems to know about Steve's adventures, it turns out Joe Flood is the only person alive who's heard the tale of this alleged Picasso from Steve himself and can recite it back to us from top to bottom. And at least at this point, I haven't found that story in the piles of tapes that Steve left behind. So Joe and I are going to tell this one together. The Legend of Fred and Betty. The year is 1989. 
Steve's been doing drug runs for over a decade, and he's just been offered a pretty epic job. First, he would break a host of trade and travel embargoes by taking a yacht to Cuba. He's going to smuggle it to Cuba. He's going to load it up with, like, refrigerators and satellite dishes and air conditioners, that kind of stuff. For this particular run, Steve would smuggle electronics into Cuba and drugs back to the United States. But this run was a bit more interesting than his others because he's bringing something else back, too. He's going to smuggle art back, all this leftover artwork from when, you know, fancy people left Cuba after the revolution. When Castro's Marxist regime took over in the 60s, lots of people, mostly wealthy people, were scared. So they fled. Most of them, thinking they'd be back someday soon, left their belongings behind. Castro's regime seized all that art and stored it in various government buildings. I think the idea was they were just going to hang the artwork up on the wall like it was just the artwork in the yacht. So basically, to cover for the drugs and stolen art and to keep the Coast Guard off their trail, Steve would play the handsome yacht owner, a role he was practically born to play. Joe says Steve had a contact, one of Pablo Escobar's American connections, and that this art was meant to go to Escobar himself. You know, used for collateral and things like that in the drug trades. You know, because Escobar is a thing for art. This is common in drug trades, using items of value like cars or art instead of cash. There's less of a paper trail. Steve agrees to the deal, setting the play in motion. That becomes the Cuba run. Sounds straightforward enough. Of course, it had a few bumps in the road. Like, from the first moment Steve got off his boat in Cuba, he was immediately met by men in a limo. And they all had guns. And he described it pretty specifically. It's like a Mercedes-Benz limousine. One of the bodyguards, he's got a, like an Uzi pointed at Steve's midriff. Steve looks at it, looks at the guy, says, hey, is the safety off on that thing? And the guy looks down at the gun, flips the switch, and he says, now it is. And then the, the bodyguard asks him, you know, gestures to the man who's clearly in charge, and he says, uh, do you know this man? And Steve says, no, but I voted for his brother. The brother in question? Fidel Castro. As in, the man who ruled Cuba for nearly five decades. Apparently, the bodyguard was protecting Fidel's brother, Raul. At some point, these guards take Steve to what seems to be the basement of an old government building. There are guys down there with, it's just like a giant piles of money, like just loose bills. And there are these guys down there with pitchforks turning over the money like you would a pile of hay so that it doesn't rot. Apparently, they're all $1,000 bills left behind after the revolution. Steve is going to smuggle piles of these bills out of Cuba. Then they drive him out to Finca, Finca Vigia. It can only describe the Finca Vigia, Hemingway's beloved Cuban home, as a time capsule. Imagine that one day you get up and leave your house and never come back. The Finca's like that, preserved in amber exactly as he left it for the last time. It's a pale yellow stucco house with large windows covered in greenery. 
On the inside, it's filled with sculptures and animal heads and bullfighting paraphernalia that Hemingway collected himself. It's owned by the Cuban government now, and it's run like a museum. In fact, when Steve stood in the doorway, he was greeted by a curator. This curator has to give this stuff over to Steve. The person is clearly really upset about having to deal with this drug dealer and with what's going on, which is a piece of the museum's collection. Steve collected the piece. This was Fred and Betty. Steve was supposed to trade the piece for payment, but things didn't go as planned. But then very quickly, the walls fall in around everybody's head. Escobar's Medellin cartel was falling apart. Carlos later, his point man in the Bahamas, was arrested and extradited to the U.S. in 1987. Escobar himself was on the run until he was killed by a joint American and Colombian task force in 93, six years later. In Cuba, that same year that Steve finished his run, Castro executed one of his generals, Arnaldo Ochoa, for drug smuggling and theft and sale of left-behind art, patrimonio, as they call it in Cuba. Castro allegedly executed Ochoa to cover up his own government's involvement in drug and art trafficking. And so, you know, basically every single pillar of this, you know, whole shaky edifice just collapses. And so Steve is left with the piece. So that's the legend. And for Joe, that's all it might have been. But for a moment right before they set off for Miami, Joe got to ask Steve a question. Speaking of which, do you have the piece? Can I see the piece? That's the next step, motherfucker. You know, I'm a gangster. And I'm an outlaw. Come on. Come on up. Shit. This is what it was given to me in. It's in this green U.S. military medic case, outfitted with foam. Steve says it's from the Bay of Pigs. Yeah, I told you that. Uh, it's from the Bay of Pigs. Am I bullshitting? Doesn't look like it. Motherfucker, you better <laughs> shut the fuck up. <laughs> shut the fuck up, Harvard boy. Steve takes the piece out. You see this? This is just how I got it. That's the man fits together like this. Oh, well, that's it, man. One of a kind. So are you satisfied now? Satisfied. Huh? Looking cool, man. It was an insane piece to look at. I've seen it in pictures. Four rectangular tiles, all different sizes, slotting together to make two figures. The glazes are primarily blues and oranges, but the most striking thing about it are the eyes. They look bloodshot, like they've been crying. At a certain point, it just seemed far more realistic that this crazy string of circumstances and events had in fact happened, more or less, as Steve was saying, just seemed far more plausible than any kind of conspiracy theory. This was Joe's breakthrough. But then, in true Steve Co. fashion, he brought Joe back to the real world. He pointed to this yellow rectangle at the bottom of Fred's tile. See the dick? See the dick coming up? 
Oh, yeah. Some of the scrotum coming in here. This is what we snort off of. When you get down to Miami, you got to snort off of this. <laughs> off the dick, huh? <laughs> right off the dick. <laughs> For the record, Joe says he didn't snort coke off the dick of an alleged Picasso. But by the time I spoke to him, he was convinced the piece was real. Maybe you have to see this thing to believe it. Because for me, the story just doesn't add up. I just don't get how Steve went from being a professional football player to a drug smuggler who rubbed elbows with the Castros. And I was still trying to find one shred of evidence that he was ever in the NFL. It was tough. He wasn't on any rosters for any of the teams he mentioned. All of his online stats were about his college career. I couldn't even find a picture of him in an NFL jersey. I don't know why this was a sticking point. But for me, this whole story hinged on him being in the NFL. Like, if he told this one big lie, how could I trust anything else he said? And then, I found this newspaper clipping. It was from the Saturday, August 2nd, 1985 issue of the Palm Beach Post. The headline? Impossible dream motivates rookies in Dolphins training camp. As in the NFL team, the Miami Dolphins. There's a big pull quote from one of those rookies right in the middle of the article. It reads, I know all the odds are against me but I'll do the best I can, and whatever I learn here will be valuable later on. The rookie is obviously Steve Coe. Next time on Hemingway's Picasso. My heart's beating a million miles an hour. These guys are gonna kill me, they're gonna keep me here, they're gonna hold me hostage. While people are playing with Legos, I'm playing with blocks of fucking cash, you know? There's not a fucking chance in hell my story ain't gonna work for a series. Just starting off with a football. I think that Steve has like a weird obligation to a ghost, to a man that like is speaking to him from the grave. This show is hosted and reported by me, Leah Carroll. Senior producer is Pallavi Kotomasu. Associate producer is India Witkin. Original music by Emma Palm. Audio engineer is Sam Baer. Fact checker is Erica Gaida. Development producer is Grant Irving. In association with Vespucci Group, based on a story by Joe Flood. Executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs, Tom Koenig, Steve Ackerman, Johnny Galvin, Daniel Turkin, and Nick Katz. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.